This is Dr. Jacqueline Duget, and you're listening to What is Black Podcast, where we have conversations about raising African-American children and the intersection of race, culture, and identity. Good morning. I'd like to welcome our special guest, Dr. Janie Ward. She is a professor at Simmons College. So good morning, Dr. Ward. Yes, good morning. How are you today? I'm doing very well. I didn't do justice to your title, so I was wondering if you can share a little bit more about um, your professional background um, for our listeners. Sure. Um, currently, I am a professor at Simmons University in Boston, Massachusetts, um, where I chair um, two different departments, the Department of Africana Studies as well as um, the Education Department. And my background is as um, a developmental psychologist who does educational research. So I focus primarily um, on black kids um, in elementary and secondary school, um, as well as in college. Um, And I'm particularly interested in racial identity, moral identity, um, and gender identity. That sounds wonderful. Um, Dr. Ward, I first learned about your work while I was doing research for an article um, that a colleague of mine, Dr. Shanta, uh, Dr. Shanta Anderson, and I wrote um, for the AAP, and it really came out of, unfortunately, you know, report after report of the deaths of African Americans um, at the hands of police, unfortunately, and other, and other instances. So the, just the rising um, talk about violence, um, and the African-American or perpetrated against African-Americans. And so, and also to the growing discussion about race and racism, not that that's ever gone away, but I think it became more evident over the, over the last couple of years or more yeah, for sure. over the last couple of years. And so it got me to think about, you know, how do we have quote unquote, the talk with our kids, right? How do we help prepare them and empower them to um, address some of these difficult conversations, these difficult issues and also, like you say, kind of, kind of feel good, still feel good about themselves despite some of the negative messages that they're hearing. So I wanted to, um, I guess, first have you explain, you're a little bit more expert than I am, on what, what is the talk? Sure. Um, so, you know, when I first started my um, research, when I was just a graduate student back in the 1980s, um, I would talk to adolescents, black adolescents, um, and eventually started talking to parents themselves. And what the kids would do is, of course, they'd talk about the kinds of conversations that they have with their parents um, and the topic of those conversations. At that time, I would say that a lot of what the – there were some gender differences. So a lot of what the girls would talk about would be, you know, I talked to my mom about girl things. Um, and for young black women, that often – um, circled back to feeling um, good about yourself, feeling attractive, feeling worthy, because there are so many messages out there um, uh, that are aimed at black women that devalue the way that we look or the way that we are in the world. So those are the kinds of things that black girls would say they would talk to their moms about. Black boys, on the other hand, often talked about um, their parents would alert them to the hyper-surveillance um, that, uh, of, you know, the police 
in neighborhoods, how careful you have to be when you're out in public spaces, how to behave in front of police. So that's been going on for decades, for decades. Um, But uh, back when I started, it tended to be more gendered, right? It was more for the boys. I would say that the talk today, the talk being defined as what do we say to our children to help to prepare them for the socio-political world that they live in. I would say that the talk today is um, less gendered in the sense that we talk to girls as well about public spaces. We talk to girls as well about um, police surveillance and the criminal justice system eating them up Um, because it is a fact, right? There are uh, books and reports and TV shows and movies all um, focusing on how difficult it can be for young African-Americans and other brown-skinned people in this world today. It's some, it just feels as though so much is stacked against us um, in our schools, in our communities, um, sometimes even in our homes. And so that's what the talk is all about. It's preparing our kids for the reality that they live in. Now, when we, when we talked, um, when I first had an opportunity to speak with you, we talked about there's probably also some differences based on socioeconomic as well as developmental. And I was wondering if you could speak to um, those influences on how the talk Talk me inf- how that how those those attributes or characteristics may um, infuse or um, provide some additional yeah. context for those conversations. Yeah, sure. So, you know, um, the buzzword these days is intersectionality, and all that means is that we can't be um, we can't walk around um, with this notion that all black people are the same and that their experiences are the same because that is just not the case. There is some of us who have um, more money than others of us. There are some of us who live in um, uh, predominantly black communities. Others of us live in predominantly white communities. And depending on where we live, um, what kinds of resources exist in the family, our experiences with race can be quite different. And so when we talk about the talk, we need to be able to break down um, uh, for our kids um, conversations about who you are and how to navigate the world that you're in that is tied to the context that the child is growing up in. So when kids are in predominantly um, black spaces, you know, there are certain advantages associated with that. Perhaps you are surrounded by people who look like you, people um, who, uh, you know, not only are you being raised by your mama, but you might also be raised by other black women who look like you, who share similar cultural values, um, and, and you might be, you know, really raised in a community 
Whereas if you're in a predominantly white setting, um, things might be different. It might, you may not see as many black people um, in a given day, given week. You may not see black folks until the holidays when your family gets together, or maybe if you continue to go to a black church, you know? So, um, so how we shape those messages can differ significantly um, based on the context, socioeconomic con- context of our lives. The other thing that's really important has to do with um, development. And that is that, you know, we, um, we always have to be cognizant of the fact that how we shape our messages to children need to take into account the age of the child and the developmental um, capacity of the child. So there are certain things that you can say to teenagers that you wouldn't necessarily say to a seven-year-old, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want to uh, scare children. You don't, you, it's always a balancing act because what we want to do as black folks is talk to our children about the fact that they could become victimized in a society that devalues you based on the color of your skin. At the same time, we do not want our children to grow up with a victim mentality. Mm-hmm. We don't want them to walk around thinking, oh, everybody's against me and there's nothing I can do and so why try? So it's a balancing act between orienting them to the reality of the world, but also giving them the tools to be able to navigate the hard times and thrive um, and become the kind of person that they want to be and we want them to be. So how you do that takes time. You start when they're young. The messages that we give to children when they're young may focus more on the self talking about how beautiful they are, talking about how, um, how smart they are. And they will get even smarter yet when they're in school and they're reading and learning about um, black people and the struggles that we've had and the ways that we've overcome. Giving, you know, giving them those tools, building up their self-esteem. When they get to adolescence and they're out in the world, And we are not, we parents are not with them all the time. And they have to make decisions um, about who they're going to hang around with, what they're going to do with their lives, the kinds of conversations we have with them about being black and male or female or gay or trans or whatever they are is really going to be different be more focused, um, and, and uh, you know, really, uh, and it has to be delivered in a way that teenagers will listen to it. So it sounds like the, you know, the, the heart of the talk really is the talk, is having, having those conversations, which I think is, you know, it's kind of like, it's like mind-blowing <laughs> in a way. It's like, you know, it's kind of, it's that simple, right? You got to have the conversation. It could still be, you know, it might be a rough conversation at first, or, you know, but at least you're starting to have that conversation. And I think, I think the one thing I loved in the, in the previous conversation we had 
is the importance of affirming children and how having conversations does that. It does that, you know, because it, you know, it says, I see you, I understand you, and I am, you know, you, you are my child or, and, and, you know, one of the things that is really important to say is that I am talking primarily about parents having conversations with their children, but the talk can be delivered by any um, adult in a child's life. Um, they don't have to be biologically connected. Many of us can tell stories of having adults in our lives who sat down, talked with us, saw us for who, who we are, um, and acknowledged us. And they weren't our parents, right? They might have been the piano teacher. They might have been the minister. They might have been a teacher. So, you know, this, this is not um, work that is located only within the parental unit, but it is work that is um, intergenerational, right? Um, people who have been there and know a little something-something that's passing on information to the next generation. So, Dr. Ward, I was wondering, you know, in previous conversation as well, I mean, we, we talked about the fact that there are um, transracial adoptions or there are, you know, multiracial families that are raising kids of color, African-American, kid, African ancestry. Um, so I was wondering, how, how would you, what would, your, what would your suggestions be for, um, for parents having those conversations with their kids if it's a transracial adoption um, mom or dad might be of a different race um, than, yeah, yeah. Than, their ch- than their children. Yeah. So, you know, one of the, one of the things that's been interesting, um, now that the talk has been named, right, mm-hmm. and um, there are a lot of people who are talking about the talk, um, when I go out and um, either talk about my book or, uh, you know, talk about, parenting black children, uh, folks come up to me. And there's a wide range of really interesting dilemmas that are out there regarding parenting um, of black children. And so, for instance, um, I have been struck by how how many people of African descent are raising black children um, and are grappling with these questions of race, but the parent themselves may not have had a lot of experience with race in America. So now I'm thinking about um, Af- Africa, immigrant parents, right, mm-hmm. who might have been born in Africa, might have been born in the West Indies or, uh, you know, in uh, Caribbean nations, um, uh, may have been born in Europe, and now they're raising their children in the U.S. where we have a very unique um, way of doing race. And their children are having all of these experiences with race, but the parents are still trying to make sense of what the heck is going on. So developmentally, there can be kind of a misalignment, um, a mismatch. Um, and the parents are asking me, you know, what do I say? How do I make sense of this? 
Okay, that's one group. There are also parents, black parents, who might have been born in this country, who, for whom dealing with race in their life has been such a difficult um, journey that now as parents, they, they don't even know how to talk to their kids without scaring the kids, without, you know, um, um, sharing all of their pain. And so they have some healing to do themselves um, before they can talk to their children in ways that are affirming and um, will move the child along um, in positive ways. And then there are white parents um, who may have a black child. They might be biologically connected to that child. They may have adopted that child. And because their lived experiences being white in America is quite different than being a person of color, they too are struggling with, well, what do I say to my kid? This was not my experience growing up. I don't have messages that I can um, reflect on that my mama gave to me when I was growing up. I'm starting at, um, you know, at stage one. What, what do I do? What do I say? So, so I think that, you know, it's really interesting to kind of stand back and think about all of the black kids that are out there and the various needs that kids may have around the talk, right? Um, and there's a role for all of us to play because kids are growing up in so many different contexts. So I guess it goes back to, you know, to what you said earlier. If it's whether or not the parent has that shared shared context, contextual experience with race, racism, just I think just having the conversation like you said, even, you know, just doing it development, developmentally, you know, affirming who they are when they're young, um, exposing them um, to positive images, and also listening to them and talking with them about struggles that they may be, may be dealing with and you yourself might be dealing with. Right, 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 right. You know, I think that one of the things that um, we've been able to do as a people is that we you know, we have, we have uh, shared these messages with one another, right? Mm-hmm. You know, a long time ago, we didn't have psychologists that, or, or especially not child psychologists. Um, this idea of, um, of counselors and therapists supporting parents, that was not part of... Um, what we did as a people, right? We relied on each other. It's sort of, it's time for us to do that now more than ever. One of the, you know, one of the, as I was talking, I was also thinking that perhaps one of the reasons why the talk is so important now is because parents are really anxious. Our children are, um, are on social media a lot. And our kids are seeing videos um, of police brutality or of, you know, white folks calling the police on black folks um, 
just because they, for whatever reasons, feel unsafe. And our kids need to have some place where they can talk this out, preferably with somebody who can help them to understand and answer their questions and give them the tools to make sense of this uh, in ways that are, um, you know, affirming and good for the child. And so sitting back and saying, well, hopefully they're going to figure this out on their own, right? Mm -hmm. Or sitting back and thinking, well, I'll get to it when I think he's a little older and can understand it. We, we don't have time for that anymore because you don't know what your child is being exposed to in social media. And you don't know how they are going, you know, who they're talking to, to um, comprehend what's going on. So the talk is, this is, the talk is for now. This is the time to do it. And I think it's, and I think, I think the one thing that continues to resonate with me is that, so, you know, you're as an educator, a developmental psychologist, myself as a pediatrician, um, we're both moms, right, parents. I think the one thing yep. is that they're, they're, to, they're like tried and, tried and true tools, you know, like when a, when a patient comes to me and I give anticipatory guidance, unfortunately, this isn't one of, this isn't the typical anticipatory guidance I give to parents. But I mean, but I, but we talk, we tell our parents, you know, play with your kids, interact with them, spend quality time. This is part of that quality time. Um, it's a, it's a different type of quality time. But again, if you're, if you're engaging with your kids, reading, you know, I think there are opportunities, um, to read books. You can read affirming books, read books that, about differences and their opportunities to, opportunities to have conversations. And even with social media, Absolutely. I, think, I think these are opportunities. What you see on television, right, or, if you, or the lack of what you might see on television, there might be opportunities, again, developmentally. So what do you think about that? And which I think is so perfect. I think you are, you know, you kind of break it down for like making it tangible. You have to talk about, you have to talk. And again, the talk isn't necessarily always, you know, you're sitting down with your kid and say, let's talk about race and racism. It's mm-hmm. engaging them. Right, so. right. right. And, you know, and, and um, sometimes, uh, you know, we have children that if you try to take the direct route, um, they're out of the door before you can, you know, finish your sentence. They just do not want to... Um, talk to, to you directly about these experiences, but um, books, and especially for younger readers, there are some amazing books out there um, that are written for, uh, you know, picture books, books for elementary age children that explore issues of how you look, uh, appreciating how beautiful you are, that beauty comes in lots of different um, uh, shapes and sizes and colors. That's a perfect way to start to talk to a child about the importance of self-love and giving kids the tools to be able to, to psychologically push back when they are bombarded with those messages as they grow older that say that the way that you look does not fit, if you're a girl, the beauty ideal, you know, um, you don't look as good, right? Now, for young adults, 
there are really great books that are coming out, some of which are being turned into movies, like The Hate You Give, right? So that's a perfect opportunity to talk to a young person, you know, a teenager or a young adult. It's a great story. The movie, uh, you know, was really well made. So sit down with your kid, watch a film together, and talk about the film. It's a perfect entree into this more uh, complicated conversation about race, right? Social media uh, is another place in which um, there are, there's a lot of chatter. There are some uh, really good blogs that are out there for, for kids to read. They're short. They are powerfully written. They can jumpstart conversations. And similarly, magazines, especially the magazines that are aimed at black folks, Essence or uh, Ebony, you know, have had some good articles about uh, race and racism in children. So there are resources out there uh, that we can use to aid us in having the talk. And whether you want to do it visually, whether you want to pick media, whether you want to do print, I don't think it really matters. The idea is to start the conversation, communicate to your child that this is something that's important to me. I hope it's going to be important to you. It is a conversation that's going to go on for quite a long time, right? Mm -hmm. These are issues that we deal with individually across the life cycle, right? It doesn't go away just because you're 40, you know, or you're 60. You're still dealing with being black and white America. Things are going to change, but, you know, you're still dealing with um, some of the burdens uh, that are associated with being devalued based on the color of your skin. So we're in this together. Let's talk about how to build each other, support each other, and love each other through this journey. We talked about books. I thought that was a great, um, great transition because I, I really love your book, The Skin We're In. And Thank you. Talk, and you're very welcome. You talk about a four-step model to help parents and teenagers learn to resist racism, read it, name it, oppose it, replace it. And people can, you know, if they get the book, and I'll definitely put a link to the book in the, in the podcast notes, but I think you do a great job of kind of really outlining it, outlining what the model entails, how, how parents can utilize the model, and you also give examples. But I was just wondering, um, how did you come up with that model and those suggestions to help parents? So the way that I came up with the model was by listening to parents and listening to teenagers talk about um, conversations that they've had. So uh, I'll go through really quickly four steps. The first step is read it. So what I found is that kids would talk about, you know, something happened at school, for instance, and they're not exactly certain uh, if they, if, if this thing is racism or 
you know, what was going on? They just feel kind of uncomfortable about the situation. I call it read it because I think that sometimes kids need assistance from adults in helping them to figure out what just happened. So how do you read a situation? A teacher might have said something. How do you, what, what should you be listening for? What are the kinds of patterns that occur? Maybe the teacher only said this one time, in which case the way you think it through might be very different. If you feel like, you know, this teacher keeps on saying these kinds of things over and over again, right? So we're giving kids the tools to be able to um, think about a situation, break it down, break down the, the parts, and determine, wow, it, am I, um, I'm feeling injured. Should I feel injured? Or maybe this is just a coincidence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when I'm thinking about, we call them microaggressions now. Microaggressions are all over the place. And uh, there are a lot of kids, a lot of adults out there. Something might happen. You're just not sure how to call it. Reading it is giving people a vocabulary to use to, to be able to think a situation through. Naming it is making a determination. Okay, so was this like, you know, accidental, coincidental, a situation that happened once probably will never happen again? Or is this really something I should pay attention to? Is this racism? And I like to remind parents that for a child, um, calling something racist and really sitting with that can be an emotionally difficult moment, especially when kids are thinking about um, an incident that might have happened in school with an adult in school, like a teacher, principal, counselors. These are the people who are supposed to be caring for you, taking care of you, having your best interests at heart. And if they're doing something that you've determined is racist, that hurts. And we need to be able to understand that and be there for a child when they say, this teacher is racist and you need to, uh, uh, and you know, I'm going to share with you what they're doing, right? We don't, that is not the time to, oh, forget it, belittle the child or um, suggest that the kid is, is thinking about this um, uh, in ways that are wrong. It's really sitting with it and sitting with that pain, right? Naming it. Now, once you decide that this is racism, you're going to have to do something about it. And that moves into this uh, third stage, opposing it. There are all sorts of different ways in which we can resist racism. Sometimes we resist racism in ways that are um, uh, that may work in the short term, but in the long term it could be problematic. So, for instance, the the uh, high school student or the middle school student who feels like a teacher is racist and decides to go and cuss the teacher out. I would consider that um, not a very smart um, resistance strategy because 
There are power dynamics there. And that child could be expelled from school. We know that the suspension rates um, for black children is high and getting higher. Black kids are getting kicked out of school left and right for disciplinary reasons. So we don't want a child to become victimized by adopting a resistance strategy that's just, that might work in the short run. Ooh, I feel better now that I cussed her out. But in the long run, who's the one who's going to get hurt? So when we come up with those oppositional strategies, those resistance strategies with children, we have to make certain that they understand that they've got to come up with a strategy that is uh, focused on the long term, a resistance strategy that, is, that has um, their best interest in mind, that is affirming of themselves, affirming of our culture, that is going to allow them to move forward and become the best that they can be. And sometimes that means, you know, they're, they're, the, the kids that I've talked to have come up with strategies like you wouldn't believe. Sometimes strategies are uh, doing, you know, going and talking to a teacher or talking to a principal in, in these kinds of situations. Sometimes it's about um, circulating a petition. Sometimes it's about writing a, something that goes into the school newspaper. I mean, there are so many different ways in which um, kids can resist positively and affirmatively. Um, and we have to work with kids to develop um, those techniques. You know, I, I, I remind black adolescents that the Me Too movement and um, Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. were kitchen table movement, a group of people coming together saying, you know, basically, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And they created resistance strategies that turned into huge social movements, right? Okay. So helping kids to understand that there are ways that you can oppose and push back against the isms in your life that are really going to make a difference. That's opposing it understanding the history of resistance, helping kids to tap into that history and see themselves as members of a long legacy of resistors. And then the very last stage is replacing it. Because one thing we know is that these battles are hard won and they take a tremendous amount out of us. Replacing it is about self-care. And I think we have to, in this culture, start early in helping kids to be able to figure out what it takes to take care of themselves. So, you know, for some of us, uh, for all of us, it's eating well, it's getting exercise, it's getting enough sleep, right? Mm -hmm. It's also knowing our history, reading about black folks that have come before us who have fought these battles and can, you know, live to tell the tale. It's about nurturing our spirit. And I have black teenagers who would talk about 
going to church or listening to gospel music and having those inspirational lyrics fill their hearts and fill their souls so that they could go back into that school the next day and do what they got to do to navigate that environment with their heads held up and with their eyes on the prize. So there are multiple ways in which we can recharge the battery. And we got to do it because the battle is long, right? And, and, our, and our children, you know, are part of it, whether they like it or not. Oh, man, I think that's, that's you broke it down so, so very well. And again, I think people, to learn more, they should definitely pick up the book, um, The Skin We're In, to get more details. Um, and this has been a, a very enlightening and wonderful conversation, Dr. Ward. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to listen to other episodes. What is Black Podcast can be found on Stitcher, Google Play Music, and Apple Podcasts. Please remember to rate and review us.